tiny in all that air. The Philip Larkin Society Podcast. Hello and welcome to Tiny in All That Air, the Philip Larkin Society podcast. My name is Lynn Lockwood. The honorary vice presidents have always played an important role in the Philip Larkin Society and they come from varied backgrounds. Archie Burnett, Tom Courtney, Barbara Everett, Alan Johnson, Andrew Motion, Rosemary Parry, Grayson Perry and Dale Salwak are soon going to be joined by several more new HVPs and I wanted to take the chance to introduce you to some of them in the episode today. We will be talking to our new HVPs Rosie Millard, David Quantic and Martin Jennings. Rosie Millard OBE is a journalist, writer and broadcaster. You'll probably have read her columns in newspapers, seen her on Newsnight, heard her on Radio 4 and of course be aware of BBC Children in Need, of which she is the current chair. Rosie begins by describing her developing interest in Philip Larkin and her involvement with the whole City of Culture events of 2017. Larkin's work when I was at school and I remember my father having a copy of the Whitson Weddings by his bed for a long long time um, I think he I, I think he bought it at some time in the 80s or maybe 70s anyway I turned up at Hull University uh, as an English and drama student in 1984 and of course I knew that the most famous poet in England was the librarian. I also knew he was quite reclusive. So I didn't think I would see him, uh, which I never did. But there was the real knowledge that, that Philip was in the university, was a very important part of the university, I think. It was a very important kind of uh, sense of um, status that it gave Hull. And uh, and it was very interesting, even though, you know, he had said he, he went to Hull to escape um, because it was such an isolated place. Um, clearly, it was a muse for him. And I remember when when he was dying, um, someone said to me, Philip Larkin is in the Hull Royal Infirmary. And I remember being very struck by a man who had written so painfully about the fear of death and the oblivion of death now facing it um and i just remember looking up at the 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 royal infirmary one one night and when i was walking past it, i just arrived at the station or something and um and then he died when i was in my second year and uh again i remember that very clearly um and then i read his poems and knew the, the work. But I didn't really think about Philip Larkin until, of course, um, Hull was invited to bid for the City of Culture 2017 title. 
I wasn't involved with the bid at all. I lent my name to it in support because as a journalist, I'd always been a huge champion of the city and given a chance, I would write a piece about it um, at any time. And so when Hull was in the shortlist, um, I was invited to go and talk about this live on television on Good Morning Britain on the ITV breakfast show. And I was there advocating Hull. Um, I think uh, Alan Johnson, who was still MP, had, uh, I think, yeah, he wasn't available. And uh, there was a, Lorraine Kelly was there for Dundee. Uh, there was a, uh, someone there from Swansea and uh, somebody there from Leicester. Uh, Richard III hadn't yet turned up in the Leicester car park. So, so I was pretty confident about Hull winning. I thought it was the only actual rightful winner. And, and everyone was kind of being very, very patronising, kind of going, yes, yes, you know, where is Hull? And I was given my chance for sort of two minutes to propose that Hull would be the rightful winner. And of course, I mentioned Larkin alongside everything else his stature and such and his connection with the city is so vital that that he comes to mind whenever you think or talk about Hull anyway we then went live it was very exciting to um the parliament square and the then secretary of state for culture uh announced that indeed Hull had won the the honor of the title and I just you know was punching the air as was everyone uh People will possibly remember that the news was announced to a live audience in a whole truck and there were cameras there. Everyone was crying and it was absolutely marvellous. And then the Telegraph, Daily Telegraph, rang me up immediately and said, you must write a piece about this. So I sat down and, and wrote a piece. And, and of course, I mentioned Larkin, of course. I mean, alongside Andrew Marvell and everything but the girl and other wonderful poetic creatives who've come from the city. I mean, it is, it is a city of poetry. And then as time progressed, I became chair of the, of the company uh, to bring the, the, the event to Hull, which was an absolute honour and wonderful. And then, you know, we, we need to think about how Larkin was to be represented and how he was to be acknowledged as an inherent part and the living part of the culture of the great city of Hull. And the Philip Larkin Society was really so helpful and guided us. And a rather wonderful thing happened in 2016. Um, Hull is blessed with an awful lot of very influential people who bat for it and take its side. And one such person is the Chancellor of the University of Virginia Bottomley. Now, the great thing about Virginia is that she knows everyone. She just does. She knows everyone. And, of course, she knew the Dean of Westminster Abbey. And she thought, right, you know, we need to have Philip Larkin honoured at Poets' Corner because people, listeners will know that he wasn't, he wasn't in Poets' Corner. And Virginia made it happen. And it happened in December 2016, and the Dean came up to Hull University. We were all in um, Philip's office at, at the Brimwood Jones Library, live on television. And, and he said, 
this is an appropriate curtain raiser for the year ahead. And I remember being quite tearful. I spent most of 2017 in tears um, because it was all so wonderful. But I remember having a real frisson that this was a sort of unofficial opening and launch of our great year in, in Philip Larkin's actual office at the Brimmore Jones, the library that he led and with which he is you know, totally associated. And then, of course, we all, well, we went to the Abbey uh, alongside key members of the Philip Larkin Society. Quite a lot of um, honorary vice presidents of the Philip Larkin Society were there. And then there was a whole debate about what would be on the on the plaque. And that was wonderful. But my favourite, I think my favourite um, acknowledgement of Philip Larkin in London and in Hull is the opening and closing lines of the Whitsun Weddings, um, you know, on the on the route to Hull, uh, from Hull to London, and how appropriate that it's it's there on the platform at Paragon Station, and then um, at platform, I think it's by platform nine in uh, King's Cross, and it was just so wonderful. I've got my um, my first edition of of the Whitsun Wedding, which my dear partner, Alex, gave to me. It's the uh, 1964 first edition, first impression. I'm going to read just the first line and the last line. Um, that Whitsun, I was late getting away. That's on the floor at Paragon Station. Um, and then on the wall at King's Cross, after you've done the, uh, the, the iconic journey, it says, um, sense of falling like an arrow shower sent out of sight somewhere becoming rain. And it's just wonderful. It's wonderful. Um, I know some people might think literary societies are a bit anachronistic. Uh, what do you see is the role of the Philip Larkin Society? I think the role of the Philip Larkin Society is rather a key one because I think he is a, um, a very fundamental figure in uh, English literature and in British society. Um, I think he is a divisive figure, and I think that his legacy is, um, is assured uh, for his work, but I think that these days one has to look at the, the artist who creates the work um, as much as the actual work. Now, whether that is valid or not, it's still ripe for discussion. So I think, I think the whole issue about Larkin is very, very interesting. And I think that is a, is a huge advantage, actually, because imagine having a society about somebody about whom everyone has agreed. <laughs> there is nothing to discuss. I mean, I think you'd find... Well, I don't think it's as fertile. I think that anything that draws attention to the work... I was sitting on the tube the other day with my partner and we were looking at one of the poems on the underground, um, which was a uh, an excerpt from Adonais by Shelley. And, uh, and he and I were just agreeing that Poems on the Underground is a wonderful a wonderful thing because it sort of ambushes you with poetry and I think that Larkin is is 
is a poet who is so accessible. I remember there was a, a fact about him in, in which we used to bandy around in 2017, which is that you know he is the most uh, the, the the most quotable of all modern poets um, because everyone knows the start of a, at least two poems uh, by him. And the poems are famous. Yeah, that is a massive advantage. I mean, if you said to somebody, can you um, give me a line from Keats, who is also very well known and beloved, but I think people might, some people might struggle. And uh, so Larkin has enormous advantages in, in public understanding and uh, an appreciation the poems themselves are just so wonderful to read so so your question what is the role of the pls well i think it is to draw attention to larkin um in an appropriate way i think that um to a certain degree it has got a job in um reputational protection um i think that it's always helpful if you are having a lively debate about larkin in the in the media it's quite helpful to have someone from the philip larkin society saying actually x or actually y somebody who knows the work and knows knows the man or knew the man personally that is very very helpful um i mean i think any great artist you know, there 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 are issues about their legacy, and one looks at someone like Picasso. Yeah, there are issues there. I mean, so I think that is a huge help, and I think that to encourage understanding of of the artist in a in a properly intellectual and um, grounded and informed way is invaluable. The PLS was really important to us at the City of Culture which uh, welcomed millions of people into the city. And to have an exhibition of the caliber that we did at the Brimmore Jones about Philip was remarkable. That exhibition, I think it was was incredibly influential, um, curated by Anna Farthing, uh, but with enormous help from Graham and uh, the PLS. Gremchester's and the, the Philip Larkin Society. Um, and I, I think that I have since seen exhibitions across the country which have touched upon the same kind of way of presenting work and as show did. And it, I thought it was absolutely brilliant. And it encouraged debate while you're walking around it. And it encouraged um, sort of inter- interaction from from members of the public, and it did it, it really it, it encouraged understanding, and that is one of the that I, I think that is one of the jobs of the PLS to encourage understanding of this artist. I mean that is what that is what you're here for, um, and I think you can do that in a many many different ways. Uh, you know the the trails and the you know showing people where he was inspired to write pieces, what what areas in Hull inspired him. I think that um, it's an absolute disgrace that Marks and Spencer's in White Frigate closed down because I would like to know 
how many other Marks and Spencer stores have inspired a poem by one of the greatest people working in the twentieth century? I suspect none of them have, although possibly Baker Street. I don't know, but but you know, I think that that should have kept it open just for that. So that's that's what I mean. I think I think literary societies in general are great. I think anything that encourages people, you know, to to read and know more about the person they're really interested in, is a good thing. And it also brings the that the work into contemporary life, and that means it's not dead and buried. So, what are your thoughts about the centenary of Larkin's birth in 2022 and the kind of things that we might be doing for next year? Everyone loves a proper anniversary with zeros at the end of it. Um, and for some reason, kind of journalists and Radio 4 commissioners go completely kind of weak at the knees <laughs> about, uh, about centenaries, which is great because Larkin 100 is is rather wonderful and I think that it would be absolutely fantastic if there was a national celebration of Philip Larkin in 2022. Um, I think 2022 is going to be quite a crowded year um, because we've all been shut down and therefore there are various things. Uh, one thinks of the the uh, Festival UK um, which incidentally Martin Green, who ran Hull 2017, is commandeering, mm. and the Commonwealth Games, which he's mm. also doing the opening and closing ceremonies for. So uh, he'd probably be my first port of call, because I think that one could um, wrap Philip Larkin into, into another large celebration. So, so it could be part of it, like, like, like Larkin was part of 2017 and a very important part. I think that I think that Hull is now Hull is known to the general public in a way that it was not known before 2017, um, and and people in Hull are used to dealing with visitors. There's an infrastructure now for visitors. There's a team of volunteers. I think the city itself was much better geared up to um, attract and welcome. Uh, visitors. I think that if you were to launch a Larkin 100 celebration in the sort of with the sort of integrity that that you did for the for the exhibition at the Brimmore Jones in 2017, you would have an enormous amount of people coming from across the world to this. And I think that you've already got, as I said, the infrastructure of welcoming parties and groups and so on. And it would be great if the house at Pearson Park could be um, purchased. I think that I think that um, I think it's always a very interesting question about kind of the enshrining of where an artist lived. Um, I think that looking at where an artist lived is is moving and important. I don't think it's everything, and I, but I think that Hull as the muse for for Larkin was unmistakable and is unmistakable so so i would tend to you know if you can't if there are no funds to buy the house in pearson park i i don't think that's a, a disaster i would look at celebrating the buildings and areas that he wrote about so brilliantly um and 
you know, focus on that, you could have a kind of uh, a very focused month of uh, of events. Yeah, you don't think, oh my gosh, you've got to have a whole year. And and then you can have you could have uh, symposiums, you could have uh, debates at the university. I know that Coventry uh, has also interestingly claimed um, uh, Larkin for their city of culture um, um, celebrations. Great, you know, I mean, Larkin is a is a is a national, I would dare say, global poet. So you know, as many cities as want to claim him, that's I think I think that's to be encouraged. However, how? I mean, the other thing is there are so many great. I'd just like to talk about. Larkin on film, the famous omnibus um, made with John Betjeman about Larkin back in the day. But for 2017, a local film company made some brilliant videos of Larkin's poems, which were, uh, I can't remember who read them, but, um, but I will remember in a minute. Anyway. They're very short, kind of two, three minute pieces of here. Oh, they're read by Tom Courtney. Yeah. And and those are wonderful. And there's also some quite brilliant footage of Larkin himself. I mean, again, these have been aired on television before, but at the opening of the Humber Bridge, um, or just sort of beetling around the city centre in the docks, uh, walking around the Brimore Jones. And, you know, one could collated a very rather wonderful television documentary or series of films or series of films on YouTube or tweets or you know one could have quite a quite a, a vibrant digital presence uh, even though sort of something in me dies when I hear, if I hear the word digital too much but <laughs> but, um, but the great thing about Larkin is that yeah you know, he's got so many fans and People do really love him. I don't think it'd be difficult to get a meeting with a commissioner at you know, the BBC or Sky Arts or whatever. I don't think it's going to be too tough. I think also, you know, children and young people in Hull, um, I think they'd be delighted to know that this most famous and lauded poet talked about their streets and talked about their stories and their shops and their pubs. Um, and, you know, I, I think that you could have a wonderful um, process where you, 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 you pick, I don't know, five or six schools uh, across Hull to really look at Larkin, look at Larkin's legacy, look at the work, and you could do that on a very grassroots level you could go to all the schools that have got a toad for example and say well right this toad you know why is this toad outside uh you know Winifred Holtby or wherever the toads are um and and and, and hook the children in like that the second honorary vice president to join us today is sculptor Martin Jennings his work can be seen across the country, such as Charles Dickens' sculpture in Portsmouth and the fabulous Women of Steel just up the road from me here in Sheffield. 
For Larkin fans, his most famous public sculpture is the statue in Paragon Station in Hull of Philip Larkin himself, of course. But Martin also made the plaques in King's Cross Station and the stone in Poet's Corner at Westminster Abbey. Well, I love his poetry. I think he's one of the greatest poets in the working in the English language, actually. And, you know, I was prompted to look at his writing again when I made his statue, but before that I'd always loved it. It's the, what would you call it, the downbeat level of it, the readiness to talk about sublime things in close proximity to the everyday. Mm. I think he's absolutely wonderful. Did you study him at school or did you kind of find him for yourself? Well, I read English literature uh, uh, as an undergraduate, but um, we weren't allowed to study anybody after 1945. The the modern period ended in 1945, (laughs) and I think he was only 23 then. So, (laughs) Uh, Well, we weren't allowed to study Larkin in the 80s when I was at secondary school. (laughs) Yeah. So what was the first sort of poems that, you you know, struck you about Larkin or have you got any particular favourite poems? I can't remember. I mean, he's very much a poet. You, you know, you pick up a collection and read the, read the one where the page falls open. And mm. um, rather than someone with three humdingers and the rest are average, you know, he's, he's absolutely remarkable. Obviously, he, he improves and finds his voice more obviously, in the uh, later collections. Mm. But uh, certainly when I made the statue, there was so much to draw on there um, to reference. And then, of course, the year after the statue went up, we put five inscriptions into the floor of the station, which was a collaboration with the Philip Larkin Society to Mm. choose the right quotations. But happily, that led to me reading the collected works all over again. How I wasn't involved with the society um, at that point. I'd only really just joined not long before the, the um, plaque at King's Cross was opened. Yes. Um, so I didn't really have a lot to do with any of that being sort of organised. Was was it a long process deciding on the quotes and, and the kind of location and things like that? Yes, it was. Um, the, I mean, first of all, there was a competition and my idea was selected um at which point i knew roughly where it ought to go in the station because the the narrative behind it was that he was running from the station hotel to his train Mm. um it was based around wits and weddings uh, and the first line of the poem goes uh, uh is carved in the floor Uh, beneath him, uh, which describes the train being late for him rather than him being late for the train. And then five or so lines into the poem, he talks about all sense of hurry being gone. Mm. So I invented this narrative in which he's uh, been having a drink in the station hotel, suddenly realises his train is leaving and Mm. legs it to go. (laughs) Um, But then the a year later, the quotations that went in uh, a- around the statue were really carefully selected to um, not only re- to relate to Hull uh, and to, you know, to nudge at the uh, sublimity of some of Larkin's writing, 
but also to reference the the particular location. Um, yeah. The quotation from High Windows, for example, that we carved into the floor, or carved into a slate which we set into the floor, and the words are the sun comprehending grass and beyond it the deep blue air that shows nothing and is nowhere and is endless. So when I carved that, uh, I was very much thinking of, of light uh, coming in through the glass roof of the station mm. um, and, as it were, his, uh, not exactly his, his, his spirit, but um, everything that was Larkinian rising up through that glass. So that was a, a kind of sculptural and poetic conceit. Mm. So location does matter a great deal. And later, when we put the inscription in at King's Cross, that was from the last lines of Whist and Weddings. Mm. So we had the first line at, uh, at Hull Paragon Station and then the last lines at King's Cross, uh, in which he's talking about this arrow shower. Mm. Um, and for me, this arrow shower was as if it was sent up from Hull and it landed in London mm. um, in a great curving arc. And, of course, those curving arcs are also... Um, typical of stations like Hell, Paragon and King's Cross yeah. and St Pancras. Yeah. So I like to try and make poetic links with, you know, the physical endowments of spaces. Yeah, I love that idea. The, the Arrow Shower has had so many different interpretations, but I mm. like the idea that it's a kind of arch between Hull and London. Mm. Um, I've heard people say it's like the sound of the, well, the sound of the brakes. Mm. Um, mm. And I know... Uh, Martin Amis has a has a different kind of he has this idea that it's sort of deflated sound at the end. He sees it as a more downbeat ending, which is interesting. So I think a lot of people see it as actually quite, you know, an elated ending of the mm. something very positive about the, the rain shower, very beautiful. Yes, but I understand what he means about it being a sort of deflated one, rather like air coming out of a bicycle. Mm. Mm. Yeah. But it's a marvellous set of lines. I'm sure it mystifies an awful lot of people who see it there. Um, <laughs> yeah. It's mystifying enough when you read the poem. But, uh. Yeah, uh, I love seeing it. Um, whenever I go down to London, if I'm on the train, mm. I do try and pop across and have a look at it and yeah. pay my respects. And uh, it's a very bustly place and you've got the bank machines and you've got Harry yeah. Potter. <laughs> Yeah, and yeah. I, I like to think of your your plaque sort of dispensing poetry in the middle of it all, and possibly bringing people to look at his poetry, which of yes. course is the, the purpose of it all. Yeah, and hopefully they're looking and think, oh, you know, there must be people that have looked at it and and then gone away and done a little bit of reading and research. I hope so. Yes, definitely. Yeah. yeah. Um. So obviously your role with the Philip Larkin Society has, has been to do this, and you did the um. The plaque at Westminster Abbey as well. How did you find that? How how was that as an experience? Every one of these jobs for the Philip Larkin Society has been lovely. Um, it was a great honour to carve his name into a plaque for Westminster Abbey. You know, it's, it, there are a lot of hoops that a poet has to jump through to to arrive there. I think he would have been very miffed that Ted Hughes had arrived before him. <laughs> um, on the other hand, he'd have been delighted to know that. Uh, the uh, stone on which his name is carved is an inch wider all round than Ted Hughes's. <laughs> there's, 
there was certainly some competition there. Um, and he kind of broke the rules getting there because he wasn't poet laureate. So, you know, uh, there, anyway. not all the names there are poet laureates. No. There are collective ones, for example, to the war poets. Yes. Um, yeah. And uh, but I absolutely think he's you know he has a right to be there. Mm. But it was a, it was a such a such a pleasurable job and. Um, it was all treated with such dignity and you know it was it was so clearly and quietly uh, implied that this was a huge honor mm. uh, you know for him um i i thought it was a lovely thing to do yeah it was have you been down to see it since um yes people trample over it read it um, <laughs> check out all the poets see who's there yeah, um, I've not been down since the uh, unveiling in Westminster. It, it it's in a pale stone. They, they were getting a bit tired of dark stones. Mm, so his mm. is a pale stone from Dorset, which isn't a part of the country that I associate with him, but uh, it was specified by the Abbey as, as being what they wanted. So it, mm. it relates to other stones in the... That's in nice, the then. So it gives it a, a kind of... It stands out a little bit because of the colour of it. Yes, it's not in a gloomy black slate, which you would automatically think might suit somebody as gloomy as Larkin. But, <laughs> um, it's really quite cheerful. Oh, and he was a cheerful person. He loved colour mm. in design. So, you know, yeah. it, it's nice that it reflects that. Yes. Um, so I wondered if you'd had any thoughts about, um, you know, your role as Honorary Vice President and, um, you know, what the Philip Larkin Society's got to offer what, what we do and, and how you might get more involved with us? I, I, um, I would take my leave from, lead from the society, really. Uh, I, I don't know to what extent honorary vice presidents are useful to them. Um, I, my interest is, would be more in terms of promoting him as a great literary figure. Mm. than uh, as somebody who is particularly interested in examining the details of his biography. Mm. Um, I mean, as far as I can see, uh, we've sort of gotten about as far as we need to with the endless examinations of his relationships mm. uh, with women. Mm. And with the, this other side of his life in the letters to Kingsley Amis, um, and the, the sort of a literary society can uh, have a tendency to burrow down into the kind of dirty sock drawer of a of a poet's life in a way that I really don't find very engaging. Mm. I, I guess it's sort of fun to exhibit his ties in an exhibition, but I don't think it tells us why he's such a great author. And, mm. um, you know what he what he took from other authors is of particular interest to me. You know what he what he had to share with people who are writing in English in other parts of the world, like Robert Frost. Mm, what, yeah. he, what he took from Thomas Hardy and from W. H. Auden. Yeah, I mean, I I think he's he's really among the very greats, and that's why I I hope that the society would move more towards his writing and less towards his life. Mm -hmm. I sort of feel it's 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 been rifled through now, and yeah, I'd like to hear more of his poetry. So, yeah. for his hundredth year um, anniversary, 
next year. Really, the greatest service we could do him, I think, is to listen to his poetry. Uh, and that would be by podcast and by radio, which I think is such a wonderful medium for, for poetry. Yeah. And to listen to his poems alongside other poems that he will have known and that might have uh, uh, had an influence on how he wrote, or merely that shared similar themes. And to push for this emphasis that he's not, he's not a middle-ranking local author. He's one of the great poets in, in the history of writing in English. And perhaps that hasn't been said enough mm. over recent years. Um, and there's been this, this slightly, slightly sort of grubby fascination with his relationships with his women. Which, you know, which I'm not making a comment on the relationships, just that um, it's of limited interest. Mm. In some ways, it's, it's the direction that I would like to see the um, magazine about Larkin go, mm. which tends to contain rather more breathless pieces of writing about the most recent postcard he's written to <laughs> about his recent holiday. Um, <laughs> You know, the Larkin Society is actually considerably more active on that front than, than many other literary societies. I've known two or three of them. Um, and it's, it's all pretty impressive. So I really am not in a position to make any sort of negative judgments about that. It's just that that's the direction I would like to see. No, that's, that's great. Oh, well, know, that, maybe the, highbrow, the more highbrow element of it. Yeah, yeah. Do you, do you think that or am I pushing it too far? No, I, I'm, it's really refreshing to hear you say that. And I think that's really good to, to restate the poetry at the front of our understanding of Larkin rather than Monica and Maeve and, and the relationships. Um, and I mean, all the information about the relationships and the life has been available for years and years. You know, it's not like we're hiding anything um, yeah. since the letters yeah. were published. Uh, and I think it was good that the way James Booth through his biography and, and through the, the letters home, you know, the letters to his mother sort of, as I think, kind of redressed the other sides of him. And I think it's all out there now. We know everything there is to know about him. Unfo you know, probably unfortunately him. I think he'd be mortified to think. He'd have been mortified, yeah. Yes. Yeah. I mean, he, I, I, I never met him, but I imagine that there was a, a shy and definitely a private side to him. When I made his statue, I wanted him to be... I mean, I never imagined that he would... You know, I never thought of him as a figure in motion. So I was surprised that the idea that came to me was one of him rushing for a train. I suppose that was prompted by the poem, partly. But um, what I wanted to suggest was that here is a man who is rushing, but really doesn't want to be perceived as someone who rushes. Mm. So he's sort of drawn in. He he did this thing of pulling his chin in towards his um, chest, which is uh, a sort of defensive gesture mm. that people sometimes make. And somebody who does that, I think, would have been pretty appalled to see his private life engaged uh, through. So I'm, but I'm not saying this is a wrong thing to do. Merely that maybe it has now been exercised enough. Yeah. Um, yeah our continuing fascination with Shakespeare is despite the fact that we know nothing about his life and yet we absolutely love his writing and I love Larkin's and I want its greatness to be known. 
Yeah. And I mean, you'll, you'll probably be pleased to hear that the podcasts that have the most sort of interaction and response, um, positive response from listeners are the ones that focus on the poetry, actually. The ones yes. where we just pick a theme or a group of poems and read them and talk about them. And obviously we'll contextualise them within his life, but we also look at them in lots of other ways as well and how, you know, they link to each other and the structure and the rhyming and the vocabulary and, you know, the general greatness of them. Um, and that's what I, I really want to do, you know, and, and continue to mm. do that because people seem to really enjoy that more than anything. And uh, you're not the first person who's I've heard say we don't hear enough of the poems actually just being read and enjoyed and shared. I mean, I particularly like his readings of his own poem on the monitor programmes and everything. There, there won't be, I don't know how many of them were recorded of him reading them, but... Um, not that, a great number, is about 20 or 30, maybe something, not a huge Yeah, number. that lugubrious um, valedictory voice of his is just so suited to his own work. Uh, and some poets can't read their own work, yeah. um, but he certainly can. When me and uh, Rachel Gallatly from the committee, we've done a few of the podcasts together. She's a friend of mine that lives just at the road and we're both on the committee. And when we first realised we were both really bonding over Larkin, it was listening to the Sunday sessions. We'd sit in her front room, we'd have a bottle of wine mm. and just listen to Larkin. And yeah. just kind of, we'd laugh. And, you know, yeah. it just gets so much response listening to him. Yeah, you just, you, yeah, it's it's wonderful to hear him read his poetry. Mm. I can't think of any other poet. There are, like I say, there are lots of poets who can read their own poetry really well, but there is definitely something very special about hearing Larkin. Well, poetry is halfway between music and prose, and uh, it doesn't benefit from forever being uh, read off the page mm. compared to being heard, um, and much of the effect of it on 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 the listener or the reader is the um you know the euphony of it the, the music david quantic will be a familiar voice to podcast listeners he joined me to discuss larkin's brunette coleman writing back in july 2020 novelist journalist screenwriter we've been so pleased he's now fully on board the larkin train This terrible simile will become relevant in a minute, but I got into Larkin the same way I got into lots of musical people in that I was a fan of someone else, Kingsley Amos in this case, just as with music, I was a big fan of David Bowie. And being a David Bowie fan led me into lots of other people like Talking Heads and Grace Jones and Iggy Pop. And I'm a big music fan, as you can tell. And so I started off not really knowing much about you know Larkin, knowing that the famous stuff, the one or two lines, but because I'd become a massive Kingsley Amis fan in the 1980s, invariably I would be drawn towards his connection with Philip Larkin. Yeah. And that symbiosis really fascinated me. And for a while, I think they were, in my head, they were pretty much the same person. Amis was much more of a, much more colorful, populist, popular version, but they had an awful lot in common. Mm. And then I started to notice the differences between them. You know, the fact that Larkin, despite his reputation, was a bit more lyrical. He wasn't as much of a boorish lad as Amos could be. And 
then I went through the obsessive phase. I got the po- I'm looking at them now. I got the poems, got Larkin at sixty, got required writing, and I think that's the thing about Larkin as a writer myself and as a fan was that it's not just the poetry. He was a brilliant writer in almost every discipline, and his work was just so enjoyable to me. Obviously, that it could be moving and thoughtful, but also he was very funny. His journalism is very acerbic, but very funny and very insightful. Also, I'm a huge Beatles fan. And the line that he wrote the Beatles, you know, about the Beatles getting to the top, and once they'd got to the top, they could not get down, is not only a brilliant insight, it's just so simply written. There's not a word more than one syllable long in that entire <laughs> sentence, apart from Beatles, I think, don't write in. Mm. His views I don't always agree with, the famous three P statement. Not entirely sure if I agree with that, but I started off as he liking Philip Larkin because he was a kind of add-on to Kingsley Amis. And then I became a separate fan of Larkin to a mildly obsessive degree. I used to buy cassettes of Philip Larkin reading which were slightly elderly, which meant that for years, I thought he talked like this. <laughs> he sounds even more Eeyore-ish when you've got a slightly loose cassette. Have you still got those cassettes? Somewhere I've got them, yeah. With I think they're the quite collectible. Yeah. Are they? Yeah. They're, yeah. they're wonderful things. Yeah. Recorded yeah, in the age when you didn't do retakes, so he'll just cough in the middle of a poem <laughs> yeah. or start again. I'm not always a big fan of hearing poets read their own work. There are certain modern poets who are just, no, mate, get someone else in. But Larkin's voice really suits his own work, that kind of lugubrious style. But he's a really good reader just because he doesn't sound like Laurence Olivier. His work is fantastic. It's interesting. I am rambling a bit, but I went to see Tom Courtney do his one-man show a few years ago. And while I very much enjoyed it, Tom Courtney did add occasionally rather surprisingly dramatic sections to the poems. Yeah, it was a bit, I didn't see it, but it was, there's been, there's always been a bit of controversy about it, but that was his kind of creative take on things, I suppose. Yeah, I mean, you don't want to go and see an impression of Philip Larkin, but Courtney's version of Obard, when he gets to the bit about being basically angry against the dying of the light, he literally does get angry. And it's a bit dramatic in the middle of Obard, to say mm. the least, which is mm. my favourite Larkin poem as mm. well. Yeah, I love hearing Larkin read. I know he sort of said that he didn't really feel his poets, his poetry needed to be read out loud. He felt they worked well enough just on paper, on the page. But like I say, it, does, it sounds brilliant. And I love his slightly idiosyncratic voice, the way he yeah. says dude, dude, instead of dude. And um, oh, play that thing. I love that from Sidney Bechet. <laughs> yeah, I love that one. <laughs> it's great. Um, so you came onto the podcast last year and talked about um, Brunette Coleman. And then, um, uh, then you joined, which was fantastic. And now you're an HVP. So that's, that's a meteoric rise. <laughs> I know. I feel very honoured. I'll be the emperor of the world. <laughs> It's great to be a member of a society and to be an honorary vice president of a society when it's something that you absolutely love. Um, I wish more people would ask me about my interests, only joking. But no, it's brilliant because 
Philip Larkin is, I don't know what the phrase would be, but, you know, he's, to me, he's the Shakespeare of poetry. Don't write in. I do know that Shakespeare <laughs> wrote poems. And there are so many things to say about him. One, I think that he is probably the most popular in every sense of the word poet in Britain, probably in the English language now, times change and all that. But he seems to have taken up the position that John Betjeman had when I was growing up, mm. which is something that would probably have made him quite happy while pretending to be angry about it. The poetry transcends his life, which we have to talk about. Stuart Lee, I thought, wrote a great piece in the current magazine. Stuart is somebody who very much comes from the left and a position of idealism combined with cynicism, mm. but also feeling compelled to defend his love of Philip Larkin. And I think a lot of people do that, but yeah, rambling again, but Larkin's poems transcend his life like all good art should and have a more, have an almost universal appeal. Not everyone's going to like them, but I mean, that in itself fascinates me that the man is not the poems and the yeah. poems are not the man. Yeah. And, and certainly in this society where we are at the moment, it's all kind of come to the fore. And I think, uh, you know, one of our, well, I certainly see one of our roles is just to continue to have that debate and to continue to contextualise Larkin and discuss Larkin and talk about that and, and, and you know, not allow him to be pushed to one side or be seen as, as too controversial because he has so much more to offer. I mean, it, you know, you hear people saying, talking about being kind and, you know, what your mum and dad do to you and what survivors is love. If nothing else, everybody knows those lines now. They're yeah. part of the national language. And it's the fact that it's those lines that are part of the national language that really strikes to the heart of, you know, Philip, of who Philip Larkin was. Yeah. So slightly contradicting myself. Um, but there is, everybody is a multifaceted jewel with hundreds and hundreds of sides. And it's yeah. the sides of Larkin which are kind and emotional. And it's the honesty as well. I don't always value honesty, but a poem like Obard, which I'm going to keep coming back to because it's one of the few I know well, yeah. is an incredible uh, treatment of the subject because it's honest, it's about fear. It also makes beauty out of it. It also conveys something that's not talked about. It conveys that feeling of being awake at 3 a.m. and being absolutely terrified. Mm. and of the light breaking in. And one of the great things about Larkin is the way that he does bring in the light, you know, even in, you know, even with what will survive us of love, and he's talking about it being an almost truth, he, you know, he has to let in the light. You know, even while he's saying this isn't true, mm. he's saying, well, it might be true. And with Obard, I love that, the humanist, that at the end he's like, well, there, are, there will be a new day. Might not be there for it. You know, the postman and the telephones crouching. All yeah. those, all those uh, uh, kind of mundane routines of life, they're not going to stop just because somebody's having an existential crisis at three o'clock in the morning. Absolutely. And it's the ordinary with the lyrical with him is another fantastic thing that, you know, he lived in the, in the world like the rest of us and he managed to get beauty out of everyday objects and to see the everyday in beauty as well, if that's not like a parody of someone talking about <laughs> I'm just reading um, the uh, May of Brennan book, the Philip Larkin I knew, and I think it's a really good um, 
sort of counterpoint to that more negative side of Larkin um, because she loved him so much and they had they did have a very close relationship you, you know and when you we know all the context of what was going on with Monica and everything else at the same time and that May was perhaps a little bit naive at times but I really I really like uh, it's refreshing to read it's just refreshing to read somebody that concentrates on his his funny and gentle side rather than on his you know darker side um so I, I think that should be out on the bookshelves next to Andrew Motion and uh, you get you get two sides of him then definitely I haven't read that but I think important thing like letters to his mother yeah I mean, there is always the thing with someone who's popular that he, they do become an industry and there is something a bit surreal about someone's letters to their mother yeah published but in this case it's relevant because it is as i say the many facets of philip larkin and his relationship with his mum, as well as being one that we can all identify with because we all relate to our mothers in ways that are not necessarily always natural or informal but it does show a different side of him yeah and you know, I would have bought a children's book illustrated by philip larkin just for his pictures of rabbits alone <laughs> Yeah, yeah, they are. They're brilliant. So um, what do you think? Uh, do you have any kind of ideas about where the Philip Larkin Society might go or uh, any ideas about 2022? We've got the 100 year, you know, the centenary next year. Well, I think just keep on plugging on. But the podcast is fantastic. Again, it brings Larkin into a modern world. I think the society is doing a great job. It's just just things like keeping the name alive, which the work does by and large itself, and I'm sure yeah. publishers do. But I'd like to see, I'd like to see a stamp or a series of stamps. Yeah. yeah. I'd like to see a wide, I'm quite serious, t-shirts and tea towels on a much larger scale. I, I'm a massive believer in merchandise. Recently, Haruki Murakami, the Japanese author, did a tie-in with Uniqlo, the fashion brand. And I have now got a Sputnik Sweetheart T-shirt. And I think that's surreal, but brilliant. Oh, that is I'd, great, yeah. I'd love to see a, have a Toad's T-shirt. I'd love to have um, They Fuck You Up on a T-shirt. <laughs> uh, definitely like to have that on a stamp. Yeah. Um, I'd like, we mentioned the cassettes, I'd like there to be more awareness of his recordings. Mm. I'd like there to be more recordings of his work by other people as well. There's... um. The BBC audio thing, Dear Philip, Dear Kingsley, mm. with Alan Bennett and Robert Hardy. And Alan Bennett's readings of Larkin are particularly good. I'd like to hear younger people doing them. I'm not yeah. sure how a Tempest would feel about Larkin, but I'd like to hear contemporary poets, contemporary artists reading his work. I'd like to see, I'd like to write a dramatization of Larkin's life. I'd like to see that on the television or in a movie. That would be great. Yeah. I think he's a, you know, he's the Beatles of poetry. That's a vile thing to say. <laughs> but I think that exploring his life and his work would be something that I would like to see done more of. Yeah, and I think um, that really, I think we are ambitious as a society, but we're just uh, still trying to grow, really. And the merchandise is definitely developing. We have got a tea towel underway and uh, a calendar for next year but maybe we need to like think on a bigger scale there's just a calendar's a great idea i'll get one of those um yeah there's just so much there are just so many places to place things nowadays yeah 
Yeah. You know, and if, if, it's, if it's publicity that really you're after or, make, or aware, awareness, I think people say now, rather than making money, then, you know, the sky's pretty much the limit. Yeah. You worry about putting things up. Oh, will I make any money off this podcast or this YouTube video or this Instagram feed? And it's like, maybe, maybe not, but you will increase awareness. And that, to me, is the most important thing. Yeah, and, that, and that's the beauty of doing it as part of a society because, you know, we don't have to worry about um, getting sponsorship for the podcast. Um, what we want to make sure is that it's it's good enough quality for the members and for anybody that wants to learn about Philip Larkin. And that's just such a, like a relief, you know, from not having to, to make it commercial. If that Mm. makes sense, just have to make it work for us and work for our listeners and work for the the society members. You should also do something horrible, like get a brand of whiskey named after it. I'd like a tie-in with Branston Pickle because Branston Pickle it was also, if you look at the front of the jar, it was also um, started in 1922. So it shares a birthday with Philip Larkin. I'm sure he would have enjoyed that. How good would that be, a jar of pickle with Philip Larkin's face? Larkin Pickle, I think he would have hated it, and that's another reason. <laughs> to do it. Kingsley Amos never had his own pickle. No. Well, that's another reason to do it then. I think, I think the... Uh, I think I need to send an email to Branston. I think you definitely need to get a word in. <laughs> See what they say. <laughs> but certainly Philip Larkin-related produce could be very exciting. Well, the poem, um, the poem was a pun on Larkin. The title is, of course, my poem is 1969, and that's an Iggy Pop song. But yes, I'd been fascinated for a long time by the relationship between Amos and Larkin, as I talked about earlier, about the fact that one of them, Amos, was very famous, was a lot more loud and colourful, and more of a cartoon celebrity in some ways, whereas Larkin never quite achieved that celebrity, although he's now a national treasure, wasn't quite as brash, was more experimental in a lot of ways, was a little more avant-garde, let's not Mm. go crazy here, the name is both of them embraced conservatism, both of them embraced a lot of things. But the similarities reminded me for some reason of David Bowie and Iggy Pop, mm. in that Bowie was a more commercial version of Iggy Pop. Iggy Pop was a bit more avant garde and peculiar. But what also I think is never really stated is that Amos and Larkin, like Bowie and Pop, there was a kind of looking to approval. I think Amos wanted Larkin's approval, which he didn't always get for a variety of reasons. Some of them were jealousy and envy, but others were definitely disapproval of the way that Amos had treated, for example, his first wife. Yeah, Um, yeah. There was a tension in the relationship that I don't think ever recovered after a certain point. And that always fascinated me. That would be, if I wrote an Amos and Larkin dramatization, it would be about that. It would be about the more successful man wanting the approval of the inverted commas, less successful Mm. man. Mm. And just for fun, I thought that I would write a kind of prose poem, which mixed, there's a brilliant, there are a couple of brilliant Simon Armitage poems. One of them is a poem which conflates the last panda in the world with Ringo Starr, and is one of the funniest and most bizarre poems. I can't remember the name of it, of course. It may be called The Last Panda. But I also, I wanted to emulate that. So I wrote the story of Larkin and Amos as the story of David Bowie and Iggy Pop, 
and how Amos rescued Larkin from a drug clinic and how they lived in Berlin for a time <laughs> and produced some of their best work, the Wits and Weddings, Low Heroes, Lucky Jim. Um, and I've had very nice reports on that poem. Neil Gaiman, the famous author who I know slightly, very much enjoyed it. And I was really, really pleased with it. I wouldn't necessarily call it a great poem, but it's certainly an entertaining piece of writing. Oh, I didn't know. Uh, did Neil Gaiman um, contact you to pass on his, his uh, comments? I put the poem on Facebook. Oh, right, right. He said something very nice about it, which I can no longer recall. <laughs> um, but yeah, that was nice. Yeah, so. I know. Uh, yeah, it's just really good to have something like a bit, bit different in the, um, in the magazine. I really love that ending about putting the link between Obard and Blackstar. Yeah, because they both went, you know, and they both, Bowie and Larkin, both created works of art which are about death. And it's yeah. something, interestingly, that a lot of people don't get around to doing for a variety of reasons. A lot of people go, I'll leave that for someone else to write about. But they both faced it head on. And I think for the same reasons, because Obard, if it, is, is it the last, I think it's the last major thing that he Yeah, wrote. yeah, pretty much. And Blackstar was certainly the last thing that Bowie did. So there was that element as well. I'm also particularly proud of the line, Larkin went to work in Belfast, because that's an almost direct quote from a David Bowie song called Star. Oh, is it? Yeah. Um, oh. someone, went to live, someone went to fight in Belfast. Da, 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 da. But yeah, oh. it's not very often you get to link Belfast, David <laughs> Bowie and Philip Larkin. But it worked. So I'd yeah. really like more praise for that. And I'm slightly disappointed that I haven't received the OBE <laughs> that line. But, you I'm, know, sure, I'm sure the laureateship, you know, will, it's on its way after Simon Armitage. Armitage has resigned. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Probably in protest, but yeah. <laughs> I wrote this because I'm a huge fan of Larkin and Kingsley Amis, and I was interested in the way the relationship between Amis and Larkin worked. And it struck me one day that their degrees of differing fame and their different approaches to art were in a way similar to that of David Bowie and Iggy Pop. You may disagree, but I wrote this poem called MCMLXIX. At Oxford, Amos had his repertoire, sex life in ancient Rome, ground control to Major Tom. One hit wonder, one trick pony, then. Larkin was the talent of the two, his albums with the Stooges unsuccessful, but respected. Poets both, they each wrote novels, A Girl in Winter, Lucky Jim and Jill, but Amos Starr rose fastest. Larkin went to work in Belfast, Amos stayed at home and drank, but Lucky Jim and Ziggy changed all that. Fame lay between them like a bolster. Larkin's mental health declined. They fucked him up, the liquor and drugs. Amos rescued him. In doing so, he also saved himself. And then their greatest moment came. Berlin. Two friends on the spree. Heroes, low, the wits and weddings, high windows. The passage of the years. Obard and Blackstar side by side. The silence waiting. So long since then. So long. But some stars never go out.
you so much to Rosie Millard, Martin Jennings and David Quantic. And I know the Society is really looking forward to hearing much more from them. And we are thrilled they accepted our invitation to become HVPs. A quick hello to some of the new members of the Twitter club. Islander Man, Jojo Joanny 26 Stephen Ball and Rhonda Main. The tiny pencils are flying off the shelves. So thank you for going to the website and buying them. It does support the Society and the podcast. Other ways you can support us is by retweeting, leaving positive reviews and offering to run a Larkin and Gin Night with the local WI. It's all appreciated. August podcast is our birthday reading special and I'll leave you with a poem read by one more of our new HVPs, Anne Thwaite. Anne is the biographer of A.A. A. Milne and Francis Hodgson Burnett and for many years was a prolific writer of children's stories. As wife to Anthony Thwaite, who sadly died earlier this year, Anne was a personal friend of Philip Larkin's. I really hope Anne will join me for a full episode soon, and I'll leave you with her reading of The Whitsun Weddings. That Whitsun, I was late getting away. Not until about one twenty on the sunlit Saturday did my three-quarters empty train pull out, all windows down, all cushions hot, all sense and being in a hurry gone. We ran behind the backs of houses, crossed a street of blinding windscreens, smelt the fish stock, thence the river's level drifting breath began, where sky and Lincolnshire and water meet. All afternoon, through the tall heat that slept for miles inland, a slow and stopping curve southwards we kept. Wide farms went by, short-shadowed cattle, and canals with floatings of industrial froth. A hothouse flashed uniquely, hedges dipped and rose, and now and then a smell of grass displaced the reek of button carriage cloth until the next town, new and nondescript, approached with acres of dismantled cars. At first, I didn't notice what a noise the weddings made, each station that we stopped at. Sun destroys the interest of what's happening in the shade, and down the long, cool platforms, whoops and skirls, I took for porters larking with the males and went on reading. Once we started, though, we passed them, grinning and pomaded, girls in parodies of fashion, heels and veils, all posed irresolutely, watching us go, as if out on the end of an event, waving goodbye to something that survived it. Struck, I leant more promptly out next time, more curiously, and saw it all again in different terms, the fathers with broad belts under their suits and seamy foreheads, mothers loud and fat, an uncle shouting smut, and then the perms, the nylon gloves and jewellery substitutes, the lemons, mauves and olive ochres that marked off the girls unreally from the rest. Yes, from cafes and banquet halls up yards and bunting-dressed coach-party annexes, the wedding days were coming to an end. All down the line... Fresh couples climbed aboard. The rest stood round. The last confetti and advice were thrown, and as we moved, each face seemed to define just what it saw departing. Children frowned at something dull. Fathers had never known success so huge and wholly farcical. The women shared the secret like a happy funeral, while girls, gripping their handbags tighter, stared at a religious wounding. Free at last and loaded with the sum of all they saw, we hurried towards London, shuffling gouts of steam, 
Now fields were building plots, and poplars cast long shadows over major roads, and for some fifty minute, minutes that in time would seem just long enough to settle hats and say, I nearly died. A dozen marriages got underway. They watched the landscape sitting side by side. An Odeon went past, a cooling tower, and someone running up to bowl. And none thought of the others they would never meet, or how their lives will all contain this hour. I thought of London, spread out in the sun, its postal districts packed like squares of wheat. There we were aimed, and as we raced across, bright knots of rail past standing pullmans, walls of blackened moss came close, and it was nearly done, this frail travelling coincidence. And what it held stood ready to be loosed with all the power that being changed can give. We slowed again, and as the tightened brakes took hold, there swelled a sense of falling, like an arrow shower, sent out of sight, somewhere becoming rain.